of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret histories and little-known fascinating facts about your favorite movies, TV shows, music, and more. We're your two... Oh, f***, I can't think up any more illiterate puns about trivia. We host and research and write all of this, and then Jordan edits it, and I sit there and do nothing. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtalk, the editor. And Jordan, I think we alluded to this in our Ferngully episode, but... From the ages of 6 to 10, I had multiple reoccurring nightmares, all of which were directly related to classic cinema. One was the chest-bursting scene from Alien, which is a movie I watched at 6 years old, which is obviously way too young. Another was my home was being invaded by dinosaurs, which was from seeing Jurassic Park in theaters. Mm. Three was being stalked by a Michael Myers-like implacable murderer, because the kid down the street from me was very much into those movies, and we watched like five of them in a sleepover once. And four was Christopher Lloyd, spoiler alert, in all of his horrifying Judge Doom cartoon villain glory from the end of Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which I guess means that Steven Spielberg has had a direct hand in two of my childhood reoccurring nightmares. Wow, yeah. Good for him. Uh, yeah, your Hexus is my Judge Doom. Judge Doom melting. Yeah, he takes it way too far. It's just that saw, when he pulls out the saw hand... And it's just, like, Uncanny Valley enough that it's, like, to be actually horror. It's not the melting. It's, like, when he turns into well, the it's tuna. It's when he pops it's like, up. Well, I look just, just like this. <laughs> and when he pops up and inflates himself. Oh, yeah. Oh, and his eyeballs pop. And that's the thing. I didn't understand when I was a kid when the fake eyeballs popped out. I thought 
his eyes just popped it's out. It's the worst. Yeah, no, I, everything about that is not yeah. me. I mean, we'll, we'll get into this later in the episode why this movie was initially catered towards kids, and then they very quickly realized in <laughs> test screenings that no, nope. nope. <laughs> so they just doubled down on the whole adult thing. So what's your history with uh, WFRR, no question mark? <laughs> I watched it all the time as a kid, too. I think, like many people, my parents sort of mistakenly thought that it was a kid's movie, which... It nominally yeah. is, but there's a lot of boob stuff, too. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and guns and knives. Yeah. And, yeah, I watched it a lot. I don't think it was as scarring to me as it was for you. I kind of like the old Hollywood noir kind of side of it, too. It's such a great bit that yeah. doing the, doing the like, whimsical animation stuff and then, like, seedy L.A. noir. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree. That's so genius, man. We are probably... I shouldn't say this. I haven't tested this. I haven't talked to kids <laughs> under the age of 10 because the courts won't let me. But um, I feel like we are the last demographic. We're, we're in our mid, early mid-30s now to grow up watching like Looney Tunes stuff. Because it was just, we kind of would watch whatever was on on yeah. cable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now I, I would venture to say quite a few of those probably aren't shown anymore for various, uh, various reasons related to violence, PC. Race. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if kids seeing stuff in syndication is a thing really that much mm. anymore. It's all probably all like, like on demand. Yeah. What do you bump into on like when you're like sitting at home and you don't have hobbies yet? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, you don't accidentally watch things anymore right. in the same yeah, yeah, way. Yeah. I feel like we just kind of watch it because it was on. Yeah. I, I don't really remember when I first saw this movie, but yeah, man, I distinctly remember having nightmares about good old, good old Lloyd. Uh, well, from the Bronze Star awarded Vietnam vet who conducted horrifying psyops during the war and wrote the novel the film is based on, to the contract wrangling that necessitated getting all of these animated figures on screen at one time, to the movie's still-in-development HAL sequel, here is everything you didn't know about who framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> So, uh, as I alluded to a second ago, the film was loosely adapted from Gary K. Wolf's 1981 novel, Who Censored Roger Rabbit? Uh, Wolf had a pretty bog-standard Midwest upbringing until he was shipped off to Vietnam, where he served as an Air Force captain with the 5th Commando Air Squadron and uh, won a Bronze Star and two Air Medals. Uh, when I wikipedia them, the 5th Air Commando Squadron has been described as conducting both humanitarian programs and, ominously psychological operations until they were deactivated in 1969 at Woodstock while Jimi Hendrix played the national anthem <laughs> and CCR somehow simultaneously played Fortunate Son. I wonder if he had anything to do with Operation Wandering Soul. Are you familiar? Just go for it, man. Uh, yeah, Just you, rip you, the band-aid <laughs> off. <laughs> yeah, Heigl tried to get me to not talk about this in this episode. <laughs> I alluded to it. I went with it. You gotta go. Speaking of absolutely traumatizing nightmare fuel, this is way up there for me. Um, for those of you not aware, the U.S. Armed Forces made horrifying tapes of ghostly sounds and voices saying that they were ghosts of the dead wandering aimlessly. This was said in Vietnamese, and this is basically exploiting this Buddhist belief that once a person dies, their body must be buried in the family plot or their soul will wander aimlessly. So American forces broadcast these ghostly voices into the jungles at night via huge speakers as a way to try to frighten Viet Cong communist forces into uh, surrendering or defecting. And a tape of one of them is online. 
and it's on the short list of the most horrifying things I've ever heard. So, um, so there you go. We, uh, this movie has a piece of our own personal fear quilts for both of us. <laughs> uh, Wolf has written three Roger Rabbit books and, uh, subsequently took Disney to court in 2001, alleging that he was owed money from the merchandising of these characters. That's a rookie move. You do not take Disney to court. <laughs> this is, yeah. I mean, we're not going to dwell too much on this, but case study and why you never go against the house of mouse he estimated that he was owed something like seven million which i whatever sure and disney countered that not only did they not owe him that money that in the bookkeeping they did for this case they turned up that he owed them one million dollars over various accounting errors <laughs> one that's, that's a very round number that seems like something that it's they just, were just incredible like... man like you're they're suing us and they just they have the chutzpah to be like actually you owe us money and he eventually won the one heavy air quotes between uh, 180 grand and 400,000 in damages. But man, you do not mess with Disney. And here, this will interest you. Uh, Mr. Wolf has an extensive collection of antique carousel horses at his home, which landed him on the cover of a San Francisco area magazine in 1976. I can't really articulate why this is, but that just feels like the logical conclusion, the inevitable outcome to. <laughs> participated in psyops in vietnam i don't know just a collection of carnival toys like you gotta have something in your psyche something to balance creepy. that out yeah, yeah. He, well, it was actually his payout for nixon they were going to give him a congressional medal of honor he was like i'll take it in carousel horses <laughs> uh wolf said in 2019 that he changed the title from censored to framed fearing that uh the american movie going public seeing the word censored in the title would think it was about porn but maybe they were right to think that. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I actually haven't read these books myself, but I've heard that all the cartoons in his novels were stars of comic strips and not movies. And that's why the novels contain characters like Dick Tracy and Hagger the Horrible and Snoopy and Beetle Bailey. And the plot in the books are set in present day. And the crime at the heart of the story is that Roger Rabbit himself has been murdered or censored. Uh, so maybe that's why they took it out of the title of the movie also, is that the plot was different. He was murdered because I guess he was demanding his own solo comic strip and the studio heads killed him. <laughs> but I mean, yeah, as you can probably guess just from this brief description, the novels are a lot darker than the movie. It's revealed that Roger Rabbit has killed a studio head in the novels and his wife, Jessica, is a uh, a a former adult film star who married Roger just for his money and doesn't really love him. It, so it's also it's pretty I dark. Think, yeah. I mean, I think they also, he's like a clone in the books. Like there's a Blade Runner dimension yeah. to it. Like they can clone cartoons or make copies of them, but they only last three days. So there's like a race against time for them to solve this crime before like this copy of him dies. It's very weird. I can't say that I actually want to read it. But a thing that I don't think gets really talked about in the context of this film, at least currently, that Wolf very pointedly made the book about is discrimination and civil rights, which he says uh, Robert Zemeckis, who directed it, immediately picked up upon as something to highlight. Um, the, what do they call it, the Ink and Pen Club is a, a, a very obvious nod to the Cotton Club, which is the famous Harlem spot where like Duke Ellington and Cab Calloway could play but couldn't be served. There's a sign in the book that says no tunes served, and there's a whole bit in there about Jessica... She like suppresses her thought balloons like, in the book. In, yeah. Or her speech bubbles. She like consciously makes a choice or like has to like suppress them so that she can like pass. It's very interesting. Um, oh, as a human and not as a yeah. cartoon. Wow. That is really interesting. Yeah. The Times did a profile on this in 1988. And uh, Zemeckis said, we were very aware of what we were doing before immediately making one of the worst <laughs> comparisons possible by saying, although we drew the line at calling the dip 
the final solution. Good God. <laughs> which is incidentally is made of turpentine, acetone, and benzene, which are all chemicals used to strip paint from animation cells. Uh, speaking of the dip, did you know that the scene when Judge Doom is demonstrating the dip, I'm sure you do, I'm sure you thought about it late, late at night for most of your childhood, uh, he dips a little cartoon shoe into this vat of that this falls out of the liquid. Acme box that says squeaky shoes. Yes, yes. Well, you know who does the voice of the squeaky shoe? Who's that? Nancy Cartwright, who later went on to do the voice of Bart Simpson. They got really good voice actors. I mean, they got no blank. Well, we'll get to it. Um, so the novel comes out. Ron W. Miller, who is the president of Disney, buys the rights to the novel pretty much after it was published in 1981. Miller's fascinating to me. He was Walt's son-in-law, and he was a professional football player for the L.A. Rams until Walt saw him take a really bad hit at a game and offered him a job at Disney because he didn't want his grandkids to grow up without a dad or a brain-damaged one. I think he literally said something like, you're going to get killed out there, so come work for me instead. And you'd think with this background that he would have been kind of a pushover. And indeed, he did only last four years the job. He was made president in 1980 and was basically forced out in 1984 in favor of uh, Michael Eisner, Frank Wells, and recurring too much information enemy Jeffrey Katzenberg. But before then, he was actually pretty forward-thinking as a head of a major animation studio. He pushed for Tron, which is one of the most groundbreaking films of the era as far as computer animation, funded the early Tim Burton uh, stop-motion animation shorts like uh, Frankenweenie, and acquired the rights to Roger Rabbit. Jeffrey Price, Peter S. Seaman were hired to write the script. They did two drafts of it, and they are, respectfully, hacks. <laughs> Their other credits include Wild Wild West, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which I believe you have a personal connection to. Yeah, that's right. I have Christmas lights from the Grinch Who Stole Christmas set from the Universal Backlot from when I, I was wandering around back there as a kid. Well... Do you have items from the other movies that they scripted, such as Last Holiday and Shrek the Third? Uh, no, I do not. Incidentally, hacks though they may be, the whole subplot of this movie, which everyone forgets about, I forgot about, is about Judge Doom buying up the public transportation lines and Toontown so that he can, like, gut the city, is actually... It's what happened. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly insightful, though, because it plays into the whole noir thing, you know, Chinatown was 74, so it's about 14 years in the review mirror, but it cast a long shadow. Chinatown's probably the greatest L.A. noir movie ever made. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this is what's so fascinating. They picked up on, an, there's this whole notion in, like, this whole trope in noir of, like, the detective has, like, his A case of, like, infidelity or, I don't know, whatever that he has to investigate and then Murder. gets enmeshed in this larger, like, usually city planning based yeah. <laughs> like conspiracy. It's theory. a corruption at like a state level or like government level. So the whole thing about the red car line being bought up by Cloverleaf and the gutting of public transportation is real. And in the DVD commentary, Peter Seaman says there had to be a real story. So we came up with the red car plot, which is a real one where the tire companies and auto companies conspired to get rid of the trolley cars in Los Angeles because the car was the future. And uh, Zemeckis adds in the commentary, that's right, and all the freeways in Los Angeles run right along the same routes as the red car tracks. And it's, God, that is so funny to me because, first of all, there's that line where Bob Hoskins says, you don't need a car in L.A., we got the greatest public <laughs> transportation system in the world, which is hilarious to anyone living or peripherally familiar with modern-day L.A., 
And oh, yeah, they uh, have no, I mean, it, it, it's, I'm hard pressed to name another city of that caliber in every other regard that has a worse public transportation system. It's real. And the red cars, it might, it might be worth to add, were the, um, the slang term for the, the public trolley system, which was great, which was, you know, was a massive, really impressive, especially for its time, public transportation system. We'll talk about why this film is like in the zeitgeist right now, but uh, the guys at Red Letter Media who are, it's a cliche to say this, but one of my favorite like YouTube film reviewers, they just put out a thing on Roger Rabbit and they said at one point that there was a proposed sequel to Chinatown, not the two Jakes, which actually got made, but a sequel to Chinatown that would have focused on this public transportation scheme. Oh, wow. And I don't know how much they knew about this, the screenwriters knew about this or whatever, but it is fascinating that that was somewhere ambiently floating around Hollywood as like a pitch for a noir plot that well, made it into great. this. Yeah. But the, the funniest thing is the company in there would have been called Cloverleaf, supposedly. In the Chinatown Yeah, in this, in this wow. Chinatown spec. It's so crazy to me thinking about how, I mean, I, I sound naive saying this. I mean, companies <laughs> do that all the time. I mean, look what happened to the electric car in the 90s. I mean, uh, yeah. yeah, but it's just amazing to me that the tire and automobile companies conspired against entire city to kill their public transportation system to force people to buy cars. That's uh, incredible. What does he say? He's like, four lanes of gleaming perfect concrete. <laughs> you, From you here do, to Pasadena. You do an incredible Christopher Lloyd. I remember, I, I think it was... Uh, <laughs> Where this baby is Hook. 88 miles an hour, you're going to see some serious <laughs> It was in Hook. It was our first episode we did, <laughs> sitting in this very room that you did an amazing Christopher Lloyd uh, as Captain Hook. I love him so much. Um... So Zemeckis had actually offered to direct an early version of this film in 1982, but he had just made I Want to Hold Your Hand and Used Cars, which flopped. So Disney shot him down. Uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand is a great movie. It's about a bunch of kids trying to get tickets to see the Beatles on Ed Sullivan uh, when they first arrive in America. It's really sweet. Prime directly at you. Yep, exactly. <laughs> anyway, around this time, test footage is actually created with Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens, voicing Roger Rabbit. And I don't think it gets any further than that. Uh, but around 85... Eisner, who we mentioned had just taken over as CEO, picks it back up again. Enter Amblin Entertainment. Steven Spielberg, Frank Marshall, and Kathleen Kennedy, who Disney approached to produce Roger Rabbit with them. This was because Eisner, who had been at Paramount previously, had helped Spielberg with the Indiana Jones movies, and then Spielberg subsequently returned that favor by bringing ILM, which is George Lucas's company, uh, Industrial Light and Magic, groundbreaking special effects firm, to help with Roger's effects. It is so fascinating to me that in the 80s and 90s, they were like, well, I don't know what, two dozen people in Hollywood, and they all just like did each other's stuff. Uh, the original budget was projected at 50 million, which Disney felt was far too expensive. It was greenlit when they slashed it to 30 million, which still made it the most expensive animated film ever at that point. And then the budget did subsequently balloon back up to 50 million, which we will talk about. But so Zemeckis comes back into favor. He's hot off Romancing the Stone and Back to the Future. So they're like, okay, you're our golden boy again. You can direct. Terry Gilliam, who is apparently just everybody's first or second choice in the 80s after Monty Python in Brazil, uh, was also offered the chance to direct, but he found it too technically demanding, which is bizarre to me because it wasn't his whole thing on Monty Python doing doing animation into yeah. live action. Maybe that's why he turned it down. And he, he later usually, said he didn't blend them. It was mostly just linking bits into live right, action. Right, right, right. Anyway, he said it was pure laziness on my part, which he says he completely regrets that decision. Uh, a little bit of Bob Zemeckis film synergy here. Uh, the tunnel to Toontown and Roger Rabbit, the very distinctive road tunnel. 
It was used at the end of Back to the Future 2 when Marty is trying to use his hoverboard to escape Biff, who's trying to basically run him down in his car back in 1955. And ironically, in both films, Christopher Lloyd is waiting on the other end of the tunnel. He's Doc in Back to the Future, and he's Judge Doom and Roger Rabbit. And I guess some elements of Roger Rabbit also came in handy when Bob Zemeckis was doing the third Back to the Future, which was set in the Old West. For some of the scenes when Marty McFly is being dragged by a horse, he's actually being dragged by the Benny the Cab go-kart that they just had left over. Good. (laughs) Didn't he shoot Back to the Future 2 and 3, like, concurrently? I think so, yeah. That is insane. But that is my favorite movie, I would have to say. Two? Well, uh, it's uh, Star Wars rules. I, I, I sentimentally, I have to say the first one, but yeah. I think two is probably the best. Yeah, well, and then like three, Empire. three we don't really talk. About. No, not like Godfather. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> actually, yeah, Godfather rules, Star Wars rules, Back to the Future rules. Second one's always Terminator rules. The best. Also, Terminator rules. Although there are people who go to bat for the first Terminator over yeah. the second, but those people are wrong. Um, Spielberg's contract included an extensive amount of creative control, and crucially, uh, Zemeckis gets final cut. And uh, Spielberg gets 50-50 split for box office and licensing, which was a great deal. But man, Spielberg really, he earned it. He because, put in the work. Yeah. So he went around and convinced Warner Brothers, Fleischer Studios, King Feature Syndicate, Felix the Cat Productions, Turner Entertainment, and Universal Pictures slash Walter Land's production to lend the various characters to the film. And I mean, considering that he'd been attached to literally billions of dollars in movie properties at that point, his negotiating power was pretty good. And it was so great that he, I guess, secured the use of Looney Tunes characters from Warner Brothers for just $5,000 a character. I love that. Which is insane. And the final tally for the pre-existing cartoon characters used in Roger Rabbit, the number that I came across at least, was 140, including 81 from Disney, including ones from Song of the South. <laughs> the most memory-hold movie in Disney existence. It's not memory-hold. I think it's very Well, memor- yeah, true. People remember it. They do remembered. not acknowledge it. Yeah. yeah. Um, and there are 19 characters from Warner Brothers. Good. <laughs> That's all good. <laughs> I think... Um, Retroactively, uh, Wiley E. Coyote and the Roadrunner are in there, even though anachronistically they were not invented at that time. But Spielberg pushed for them to be in there, which is I just love the fact that all these guys were like, we love cartoons so much. We're going to make ourselves insane doing this love letter to the era. I just have the idea of like the cigar chomping executive. The coyote stays in the picture. (laughs) Coyote stays. Uh, But all these permissions came with strings attached, which are some of my favorite bits about this. So Donald Duck and Daffy Duck both appear in that club scene. They do the dueling piano scene. And their respective studios mandated that they would both be made to appear equally talented as pianists. (laughs) (laughs) One could not be made to appear more competent a piano player than the other one. I mean, yeah, I'm sure that was enough to make at least one high-powered attorney want to just walk into the ocean. Like, I'm negotiating for cartoon ducks right now. That scene is so weird in the annals of this movie because they talk about... I read this as a rumor somewhere that... So Daffy Duck does all the, like... They do that shot of him from the back end of the piano, and he's got, like, props, like the boxing glove and stuff. One of them was supposedly... There's a frame of a dead baby in there. And they took it out. I heard that the director made him take it out. Understandably. Yeah. And there's also a persistent rumor that uh, Donald Duck's like gibberish uh, includes a slur. I've heard that too. Which I don't believe is true. I 
fucking hope not. I mean, come on, guys. Like, how, but then again, it, it gets back to the whole like racial element of the of the tunes versus human, that's real true. life humans. Yeah. And the piece that they are playing in there is a bit of a cartoon greatest hits. It is a uh, Franz Liszt uh, Hungarian Rhapsody, which also plays in a Tom and Jerry cartoon, The Cat Concerto, which won an Oscar, and the Bugs Bunny cartoon Rhapsody Rabbit from 1946. Um, the other big thing from there, um, Bugs and Mickey uh, are both in this movie for like a brief scene when Eddie is falling from the top of a very tall building and Bugs gives him a spare tire instead of the spare parachute. They're, As one does. Yeah. <laughs> their respective screen time was negotiated down to the second. Millisecond, I'd read. And they had to have an equal number of words. <laughs> Dave Spafford is one of the animators on this and he called that scene the most complicated one ever because they you know they have Bob Hoskins suspended and they have to keep all the sight lines between him Mickey and Bugs consistent while all three of them are moving uh, up and down and horizontally while falling <laughs> it's insane that, man yeah. i don't know how they i like i will talk about this in once we get into the making of but i don't know how they i really don't know how they did this there's a great story with this scene when uh, Mickey and Bugs and Eddie are all falling. Uh, I, I guess the animators were annoyed with Disney because they were being a little too precious about the depiction of their characters in general, and Mickey in particular, because he's, you know, he's, he's, he's the mouse, he's the big guy. Uh, so in the sequence when they're all falling, I guess they inserted a one-frame image of Bugs flipping off Mickey, who has a shocked look in his face. You can see it online. It's pretty funny. Um, there's so much freeze frame stuff in this movie. Like, yeah, we'll get to yeah. some of that. Uh, there's also a moment where Bugs appears for a brief second outside the Maroon Cartoon Studio at the opening of the movie. Like It's just like a, a fraction of a second, despite the agreement with Disney that Bugs and Mickey had to appear together at all times to have an equal amount of scenes. I choose this to be a giant middle finger to Disney also. Like, all right, we'll sneak our guy in there a little bit more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talk us through a little bit more about these uh, negotiations about this. Oh, yeah, this whole, like, tune swap Disney Warner Brothers armistice for Roger Rabbit is really funny. It gave rise to this amazing feud that happened a few years later. So Roger Rabbit was being overseen by Disney and Warner Brothers let them use their characters for a nominal fee. Uh, and in the 90s, when Warner Brothers was working on their own cartoon crossover movie, Space Jam, they reached out to Disney to basically return the favor and allow them to use some of the Disney characters in Space Jam. But by this point, Disney was under new management and not willing to play nice with Warner Brothers, and they refused. And Warner Brothers were pissed, and they accused Disney of breaking a decades-old gentleman's agreement, and they even threatened legal action. And these threats never materialized, but Space Jam has a number of barbed jokes aimed at Disney. And as a result of this kerfuffle, Warner Brothers claimed that they would never work with Disney again. And I don't know how true that is, but I think Roger Rabbit's the only film where there's Disney characters and Warner Brothers characters appearing together. I think that's still the case. Good. Um, <laughs> and there's an incredible deleted scene that I'm so sad. Uh, I, I don't even think it was ever animated, but it was in early storyboards. Uh, in an early version of the film, there's a scene where the tunes are assembled at Marvin Acme's funeral at Forest Lawn, which is a famous cemetery in Los Angeles. And Popeye and Bluto are pallbearers and a fight breaks out. And in early storyboards, Popeye is shown socking Goofy and Elmer Fudd, which is just tremendous. Foghorn Leghorn delivers a eulogy, yeah. and 
and the coffin winds up being a giant jack in the box. It's just, <laughs> it's so great. Uh, I'm really sad it didn't end up happening, but I'm guessing, you know, these studios were already pretty nervous about licensing out their precious characters anyway. So having them get into a battle royale in a cemetery was probably a bridge too far for them. Cowards. <laughs> Uh, Warner Brothers also freaked out that um, Dave Spafford, who is that animator who I mentioned earlier, had used the older Bob Clampett design for Daffy Duck instead of the modern version by Chuck Jones, which is period accurate. Um, they got around this by making him do more work. Zemeckis had him animate a separate sequence using the current Jones design and send that to Warner Brothers as part of the dailies to mollify them. And then was like, yeah, now use the old one in the actual movie. <laughs> so he, they designed two sequences one of which they faked out Warner Brothers with, and one is in the current film. Um, I can't, can't imagine there wasn't an easier way to just put your foot down, but all right. Uh, Spafford really went above and beyond for this. He uh, pulls his groin doing Daffy Duck's signature <laughs> the hooting as he gets carted off in the, with the piano because Mel Blanc was 176 years old doing this and like just physically couldn't do that anymore. I think the other one is Yosemite Sam. He doesn't do the like, whoa! Like, he, he couldn't do that, so they, they had other people, like, step in and do that for him. Um, I'll talk more about Mel Blanc. I mean, Mel Blanc is just the greatest cartoon voiceover artist to ever yeah, live, what is he? Right? What's his credits? In the thousands of characters that he has voiced. But, I mean, among them, you got Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat. Good Lord. Yeah, Barney on Flintstones, oh, yeah. uh, the Jetsons. Yeah, uh, the guy was really an MVP of the era. Yeah, and this was one of the last ones in which he did the Looney Tunes characters before he died in 89 after making his last movie, Daffy Duck's Quackbusters. <laughs> have you heard the story about Mel Blanc and Dead Man's Curve? I sure haven't, but I bet you have it all oh. memorized. <laughs> well, yes. Uh, well, Radio Lab did a really cool episode on it. Um, okay, so it's 1961. Mel Blanc was driving along the same dangerous bend in Los Angeles that Jan and Dean sang about for their famous song, Dead Man's Curve. And he gets into a head-on while driving his Aston Martin sports car. And he's almost killed and he slips into a coma. And Blank's son and wife spent two weeks at his bedside trying to revive him, but they're not getting any response. Then, as a last-ditch effort, one of Mel's neurologists went over to his bedside and asked, Bugs Bunny, hey, how you doing today? <laughs> and there was silence for a moment. And then this extremely quiet but extremely recognizable voice says, Yeah, what's up, Doc? I love that. Which is amazing. And then the doctor asked if Tweety was in there too. And then he does the, I thought I saw a putty cat thing. And Mel spent, I guess, seven more months in a body cast. He even voiced the first few episodes of the Flintstones where he was doing Barney from the hospital in this body cast. They dangled a mic above his bed. But um, yeah, he was later asked about this sort of unorthodox way that he emerged from his coma. And he said, it seems like Bugs Bunny was trying to save his life. Oh yeah. Uh, speaking of classic voice actors, Betty Boop in this movie is voiced the original by the original Betty original, Boop. Yes, May Questel is I think how you say her name. She provided Betty Boop's voice for 150 cartoon shorts starting back in 1931 until the series wrapped in 1939. She also did the voice of Olive Oil in the Popeye cartoons, which hmm. I didn't realize. Which is also interesting because Popeye was supposed to be in this film and made it all the way to the storyboarding stage and mentioned the battle royale mm -hmm. at, at Acme's funeral. But I guess the studio that owned the rights um, held out. 
maybe they were still recovering from the Robert Altman, Robin Williams uh, movie debacle from well, the start. Speaking of, yeah, of misbegotten. Yeah, yeah, the live action thing from the start of the decade. Uh, other cartoon holdouts included Chippendale, Pepe Le Pew, Mighty Mouse, Tom and Jerry, Pedro from Saludos Amigos, Casper the Friendly Ghost, Witch Hazel, Heckle and Jekyll, several characters from Fantasia, the Tasmanian Devil, Screwy Squirrel, Rocky and Bullwinkle, and even Superman. Superman? No, 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 they weren't in there. Oh, 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 oh. You know who is? Frank Sinatra, baby. That is a real recording of him singing witchcraft when Bob Hoskins pulls out the, uh, the oh, singing the sword. sword. I think in the Red Letter Media Review, they're like, ah, it gets a little inconsistent at the end when he's doing all the wacky bits to make the weasels laugh themselves to death, which is also horrifying. Yeah. Uh, when one of them tries to cram his escaping soul back into his mouth, that is one of the grimmest things I've ever seen in a child's movie. But it's funny that it is actually consistent because in that shot of him with his brother, just this, the craft in this movie is so good. They don't do a ton of over explaining about him. He doesn't sit and like stare out the window and go, ah, oh, God, my brother. Well, I mean, he mentions it, but like they do that thing where he goes back to his office and starts drinking and they do that long, slow pan over all of this materials of him and his brother. And you find out that they were vaudeville kids. Their dad was a clown. Dad. And that's why I love that end scene because Eddie Valen has like suppressed all of his whimsy and wackiness and he's such a grump. And then at the end, he's like mugging and doing the, all the, all and the, he does the clown bit stuff. to try to make the, the, the weasels laugh. Yeah. It's he's getting in touch chef's with kiss. his inner, yeah, with Flawless. his inner self. As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more too much information after these messages. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit.
Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change, and certain restrictions may apply. We have yet to talk about Roger, who is deliberately one of the most annoying <laughs> creations ever put on screen. Yeah. He is a design composite of all the famous animation studios' house styles at the time. He has, quote, a Warner's face, a Disney body, a Tex Avery attitude... <laughs> Uh, Goofy's overalls, Mickey Mouse's gloves, and Porky Pig's bow tie. Can you define a Tex Avery attitude? That's interesting to me. I, it's a genuine question. I don't know. Uh, it. Tex Avery, I think, I mean, he did Warner Brothers and MGM. He created a load of them. I think it's mostly like the frantic mugging. Okay. And like all the manic 17,000 bits a second. Yeah. Like yeah, basically yeah. Robin Williams, um, okay. animated Robin Williams before Robin Williams. Uh, yeah. And Richard Williams, who is the supervising animator on this, who is another, everyone in this movie is an MVP, but he really just went above and beyond for this. And he says he based the Roger color model on the American flag, red overalls, white body, and blue tie, so that everyone would subliminally like it. How'd that go over in Russia? <laughs> <laughs> we won the Cold War with this movie. Um, he said that he animated Roger's ears to reflect his emotional state in whatever scene that he was in, and he wanted them to move with the grace of ballet dancers, which is one of those things that sounds insane until you watch it again, and they are moving, like, they look like um, look like seaweed moving underwater. <laughs> they have this, it's, ah, uh, this, is, this is like the platonic ideal of animation for me. Yeah, this is our second instance of animators uh, incorporating ballet movements into their work. Because didn't the Disney team study ballet dancers for Belle and her sort of graceful movements in Beauty and the Beast? Yes. Um, so there is a bit of anachronism in this. Tom Cito, who's an animator who worked on the film, said it is. It is. So there's a marquee or uh, Chiron or whatever that says it's 1947. And he said that the reason they picked 1947 was that in 1947 is, for one, the actual year in which they decided to scrap the streetcars in L.A., but it's also the last year of Hollywood cartoons that he says were unaffected by what he calls the UPA revolution. And it's when you get away from what he called the Campbell's Soup model of animation, where all the characters are like distinctly cherubic and, <laughs> and rosy looking like Snow White's face and into like more, I guess, realistic or more technically advanced cartoons. UPA was basically a renegade studio that broke free of... Uh, working at Disney and they felt what was the oppressive Disney house style. But that does give rise to a number of anachronisms in this, which we mentioned earlier. Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote are in there, but they were not created at the time that the movie was set. And there's another one when they're in the theater, right? 
Yes, that's right. They're watching a cartoon short called Goofy Gymnastics, which came out in 1949. And the filmmakers were aware of this, but they went ahead and used it anyway because they thought it was the best example of Goofy's physical comedy, which Roger was a a big admirer of. Yeah, man, I love the internal logic that cartoons respect each other's craft. (laughs) When he's like, nobody takes a bump like Goofy or whatever. It's just, man, it's so good. If every frame of this movie is crafted with beautiful love. Uh, Charles Flesher, Fleischer, who does Roger, Benny the Cab, and then two of the weasels, Greasy and Psycho, apparently took the initiative to request a life-size rabbit suit to wear for his scenes. You can see all of this on YouTube. He looks ridiculous. He wore it every day to the set. And so Disney execs would look in on the shooting and also see him in the commissaries and then be like, this Roger Rabbit picture looks like <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like something from, like, Party City. Like, it's it really awful. looks super cheap. Yeah, I don't know why. I mean, I, I, you know, it makes, to me, it makes sense why he did that. Like, yeah. to kind of remind the actors that he's, he's acting against, yeah. like, what they're dealing with here. Yeah, because you see the behind the scenes, and they have all the voice actors, like, standing out of frame. And that they're all these, like, schlubby dudes in, like, USC sweatshirts <laughs> that doing these outrageous cartoon voices. And then there's Charles Fletcher in a life-size rabbit costume. Like jumping up and down. Yeah, yeah, and he moves like a cartoon too. Yeah. I mean, he's such an interesting guy. I guess Robert Zemeckis saw him performing stand up at the comedy store in LA and was impressed with what he called his vocal presence. And they initially hired him. That's to one re- word for it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and they initially hired him to just read the part of Roger while they're auditioning actors for the part of Eddie Valiant, you know, reading sides, it's called. And ultimately, they just gave him the vocal role because he did such a good job of that while helping out with auditions for Eddie. And to come up with the voice, he recalled a piece of advice that he'd received from an animation director named Dick Williams. And Dick Williams said, all great tunes have speech impediments. That is a characteristic <laughs> vocal hook. And that's where he hit upon the like, I can't do it. The, I can't do it either. I tried I tried to do it to bring it to bring it to this episode. Yeah, I cannot do it. The whole cheek flutter thing. And I guess animators literally had to study Charles Flesher's mouth so that they could animate the <laughs> micromuscular movements he was doing when he would do that. God I, love him yeah, for doing yeah, that. Exactly. Um <laughs> And uh, Charles Fleischer... Because this before mocap. Yeah, no, there was no motion capture stuff. This was all, like, (sighs) done by hand. Uh, We'll get into this later. There's no CGI anything in this movie. This is all done by hand, which is insane. And Charles Fleischer, the voice of Roger, later said, Of all the characters I've played, he's the closest to me, Roger is. There's a line in the movie saying, I'm a tune. Tunes are supposed to make people laugh. And working as a stand-up comic during the last 15 years or so, that's the job I've had. I think that's very sweet. He identifies with Roger. Yeah, until you see him in Zodiac, and he's like that horrifying guy at the end. He's like one of the Zodiac suspects, and Jake Gyllenhaal goes to his house, and it's like one of the creepiest scenes. He's like, R. Lee Allen or some Arthur Lee Allen? Near the end of the film. He's not Lee, the guy with the watch. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's yeah. not that guy. Oh, he's not that guy. He's, a ten- he's another tangential figure that they think is like vaguely connected with it. And Jake Gyllenhaal goes to his house when it's like pouring outside. And it's like the James Gum scene in Science of the Lambs. It's like oh, this decrepit, creepy house. Yeah. And they, he, he, Jake that's Gyllenhaal. That's him? Yes, that's Charles Fletcher. And Jake Gyllenhaal goes down to the basement. He's like, not many people in California have a basement. Oh. And he just looks down. He's looking down at me. He just goes, I do. 
Oh my god. I, there's something unsettling to me about Charles Fletcher. You think he's endearing? I think he's horrifying. Well, no, I don't think he's endearing. I thought that quote was endearing that he oh, sure. he as somebody who was a stand-up for many years Empathized that he relates. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was nice. <laughs> oh my god, I I love Zodiac. I had no idea oh, that was perfect. him. Another wow. perfect film. Um yeah, so Bob Hoskins, man. What a saint on earth. You know, he's done Long Good Friday at this point. He's this just perfect almost a Tetris block of a Cockney gentleman. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> Long Good Friday, one of the archetypal British gangster movies, and he's such a pitch-perfect counterpoint to Roger and has just this beautiful little arc. But holy sh- did they run through every single leading man in Hollywood before they got this. Uh, Harrison Ford was Spielberg's original choice, but he cost too much. I'm really sad that we missed out on the, like, pissed-off, exasperated grumbling that Harrison Ford would have done to this. Dad! (laughs) (laughs) I got a lot of good memories about that dog. Uh, Chevy Chase was the second choice, but he was not interested. Bill Murray was also considered for the role, but Um... he was not home to pick up the phone to accept the offer, as is his famous idiosyncratic habit of only accepting offers over the phone and or a dedicated voicemail line, I believe. And if it's full or he's not home, he just doesn't get the role. And I guess he was like really (laughs) heartbroken about this. He says that he found out that he was up for consideration while reading a newspaper interview with Spielberg years later. And he was reading this newspaper in a public place. (laughs) And when he learned that they wanted him for the role and he just wasn't home, I guess he screamed at the top of his lungs in agony in public. But at least he got a second chance to live out his cartoon fantasies in Space Jam a few years later. So <laughs> Truly an ice-cold comfort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Eddie Murphy has also expressed his regret since about turning this role down, and he would have been in because uh, Eisner had uh, done 48 hours. Oh, yeah. Right? It was yeah, because that's yeah. why he hates Joel Silver. Yeah, yeah. Yes, exactly, which we'll get to. Robin Williams, Robert Redford, Jack Nicholson, Sylvester Stallone, Wallace Shawn, what? Ed Harris, which would have been terrifying, yeah. creepy ice dragon blue far. eyes, yeah. Ed Harris just staring holes in people through the whole movie, Charles Grodin. That would have been great. I can see that. <laughs> Don Lane, uh, all considered, and uh, Wolf, uh, Dick Wolf? No, that's Law and Order. Gary Fuck. Wolf, the creator, yeah. of, uh, creator of Roger Rabbit, the guy who wrote the book. In his audition, Bob was the only one who made us believe the rabbit was real. Ugh. And nobody has anything bad to say about Bob on the shoot. He had the most demanding role. He's in almost every scene, shooting up to 16 hours a day with either these big, creepy rubber mannequins or um, just with robots that they built to do these scenes. Um, Joanna Cassidy, who plays Dolores, who has my favorite line reading in the movie when he storms out of the bar. And she's like, a toon killed his brother. And they do this perfectly timed pause <laughs> and a slow push zoom on. It goes, dropped a piano on his head. <laughs> and it like, it hits you. It, it does. does hit you. It yeah. really does. Oh, my God. Wait, wait what did she say about, about Hoskins? Oh, she, she says nice he was masterful. He had a photogenic memory. He was a genius. And he had to be to do this because yeah. he, the consistency you need to do over multiple takes to get your sight lines right, to make sure your gestures are consistent. I mean, and, and how did he prepare for this role, Jordan? Uh, I guess to get the feel of acting with cartoon characters, he studied his three-year-old daughter playing with her imaginary friends, which I love. And also, uh, speaking of Bob Hoskins and his kids and cartoons, I guess for two weeks after seeing the final movie, his young son, who was like two years old, wouldn't talk to him. And when Bob Hoskins finally asked his son why he wasn't speaking to him, 
His son said he couldn't believe his father worked with cartoon characters like Bugs Bunny and didn't introduce <laughs> him. He wanted so badly to meet Bugs. Why didn't his dad bring him over and introduce him? <laughs> now, this is, I, I don't know if I ever told you this. I was on the set for Nutty Professor 2. <laughs> And but meet, it was the movie, the clumps? yeah, the clumps, yeah. yeah. And it was the one with Eddie Murphy where he's playing all the characters himself. And I was watching him film a scene. I forget. I haven't seen the movie in a million years, but I think it was a scene when they were having like a family dinner, and he was supposed to play all the family members. Yeah, and he was dressed as Sherman in the big suit, and all the other characters that he was going to do later, they had tennis balls yeah. on dowels that tennis were all labeled stick. to get the eye, the sight lines right and yeah. everything. It was so interesting they, to see. Uh, uh, in the Red Letter Media thing, they pull this clip of uh, Ian McKellen on the set of one of the Lord of the Rings having like like crying to himself softly because he's in the hobbit hole and he's just surrounded by an ocean of green. I don't know why the f*** Peter Jackson let this get released, but it's like sad 80-year-old Ian McKellen just like crying because he can't act in this horrifying ocean oh, of green. Oh, he's not acting. He's actually broken down. Oh, because, yeah. No, he oh. was like, he, they were like take after take and it's like him hunched over in this completely green screen set. And he talks about it in, the, in a talking head interview. He's like, yeah, I like had a guy reach my limit. It's horrifying. This shit that they make that they, at least in this movie, it was on real sets and they yeah. hadn't got to this point of where they're we just don't like, need any of it. Yeah. Just Matt, just we'll do it in a green box and it will do it in post, you know? And man, the other bit, Dean Cundy is one of my favorite for probably the guy who got me into like actually learning about Roger Deakins and, and other famous, like, cinematographers so he was john carpenter's dp that's why i know him ah. um but uh he talks about shooting in london he says that bob hoskins would come on the set and do cockney rhyming slang with all the all the guys on the set which is just f***ing adorable <laughs> it's all gone sixes and sevens this brings us to we've been we've been delaying the yes! inevitable we gotta talk about christopher <laughs> lloyd as judge doom i'm sorry here we go Longtime listeners to the show will remember a tangent we went on in our first episode Yes, I think with Hook, yeah. Yeah, where uh, we debunk the whole thing about Anthony Hopkins not blinking as Hannibal Lecter. He frequently blinks. Christopher Lloyd does not blink in this movie. <laughs> he said, quote, I felt like a tune doesn't have to blink their eyes to re-moisten their eyeballs, which is a horrifying <laughs> phrase. He said this on Twitter in 2020. They're not human, so I just felt Judge Doom should never blink. It makes him even more ominous, more scary, if he's just looking like that. It wasn't really difficult. i just keep my eyes open as long as I could, try to time it out with the next take and all that. Sure, man. Uh, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, alluding directly to me, he uh, told Gizmodo, a lot of people have come up to me since Roger Rabbit opened to say that they saw the movie when they were kids and they had nightmares afterwards. The first few Disney films, Bambi and Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, etc., each gave me nightmares too, so I thought it was a reasonable payback. <laughs> and people have said it's kind of obvious that he's a tune. It's not subtle, but most of his skin is covered up and his clothes are kind of ill-fitting and weird. He's clearly wearing pancake makeup and has the horrifying uh, Ben Affleck porcelain veneer teeth. Oh, yeah. Like, way too bright and squared off. Did you ever hear about that? Where they were doing Armageddon and Michael Bay took umbrage with Ben Affleck's pre-stardom teeth. He was like, yeah, we're doing all these low hero shots of him and his teeth look too small. He's got baby teeth. Get those fixed. So he got, like, porcelain veneers for the rest of the, for the shoot. Oh, that's hilarious to me. Um... Also, the fact that I guess the dip is supposed to not be harmful to humans, but then he has to wear a Wears glove. And... Yeah. And I never noticed this before uh, until I was researching this. Even in scenes indoors, 
his duster is like slightly blowing in the wind, <laughs> like a like a true cartoon villain. Ah, so good. I guess Robert Zemeckis keeps the stop motion model of the flattened steamrolled Judge Doom in his office. It's a up thing to walk in on. Yep. Oh yeah. <laughs> And now we come to yet another... Ferngully comes back again. Wow, yeah, the link between <laughs> my childhood trauma cartoon character and yours is Tim Curry, which kind of makes a certain amount of emotional, spiritual sense. <laughs> uh, Tim Curry was an early choice to play Judge Doom. While I haven't been able to pin down exactly where this comes from, it's been oft repeated that he was just too terrifying for the role, which if Hexes is any indication, which yep. I believe they also told him to dial it back and made him redo some of the line readings, that's probably true. I hope it's like Prince's Vault, where Tim, Tim Curry just keeps all the test footage of him doing this. So that is too frightening. Like way too far, yeah. <laughs> so instead of going with Tim Curry, they tried to get Christopher Lee to do Judge Doom, which... Would have probably been a lot scarier than Christopher Lloyd. It's just that voice, Like, man. one of the few people that would have been even scarier. Yeah. Yeah, no. So that didn't work. Christopher Lee, I guess, turned it down. And then on the other side of the coin, I love this, John Cleese expressed interest, but he was turned down for not being scary enough, which makes a lot of sense. He was in another movie in 1988 <laughs> where the villain is run over with a steamroller, A Fish Called Wanda. Yeah, I so love just, that. Just making connections Synergy. here. I love that, yeah. He was also uh, the one that they wanted to get to play Cogsworth in Beauty and the Beast, but he I, turned it yes, down. Yes, yes. I think he was in Five Goes West. I forget what he was. He, he, he chose Oh, yeah, poorly. isn't he the bird in Five Goes West? I mean, I think so. Or yeah. is that Rescuers Down Under? John Cleese, bird. No, I'm getting the dead parrot sketch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, moving on. <laughs> uh, other almost Judge Dooms. Peter O'Toole. Wow. That would have that, been good. That would have been good. F. Murray Abraham. Also I, good. Know, also good. Roddy McDowell, different kind of scary. Yeah, different kind yeah. of weird, creepy. Yeah. I don't know who the f Eddie Deason is. Eddie Deason is in I Want to Hold Your Hand, the early. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, he's kind of like a nerd character, I thought. I think he's like, yeah, I don't know how that would have gone. And Sting, <laughs> too scary. <laughs> well, he would have been coming off of uh, Dune. Dune, yeah. Okay. No, I could have seen that. I had read that Robin Williams was also considered, but he was also up for Eddie Valiant, maybe, too. Yeah. That would have been... Spielberg just wanted to put him in everything, I think. Yeah, no, that's true. Justifiably. Two other notes about Judge Doom. He was originally supposed to be accompanied by a vulture named Voltaire. <laughs> and in an early draft, I love this, he was revealed to have been the hunter who killed Bambi's mom. I, yeah, I really love that. What a great way to tie that back to this classic age. The Sting thing is also funny. Sting may be the guy with the highest track record of being turned down for Disney musicals. He was involved in the first version of The Emperor's New Groove when it was supposed to be a full musical. It's called like, I don't think it was called The Empire of the Sun. Isn't that the Spielberg? <laughs> That's the Christian Bale one. Oh, uh, I think it was supposed to be way more focused on the Incan culture and they brought in Sting to do like a full like Tim Rice, Elton John style score and then like canned it. I mean, it's been done to death, but we should do that. The making of that movie is incredible. But Sting also wrote a song for this when Roger was originally going to die in the movie in a shootout. Oh, like I got caught in the crossfire. Yeah. And uh, it's called The Lazarus Heart and uh, Disney ordered the death scene scrapped. The song was deleted and it ended up on uh, Sting's album, Nothing Like the Sun. Not a good song. I'm guessing from the title, The Lazarus Heart, that Roger rises from I the dead. I believe so. Yeah, yes, would, like the Christ. Yes, 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 yes. Um, here, this will interest you. <laughs> uh, regarding Judge Doom, 
he may have his roots in a 1944 episode of the popular radio show, Dick Tracy. Yes. There is an episode concerning a man named J.P. Doom, who's described as, quote, a shady character mixed up in politics. And his whole thing is that he's illegally trying to buy up real estate to be used for a superhighway. And he does this by directing a gang of idiotic goons. It's unclear if this is a coincidence, but the characters follow many parallels, including their ultimate fate of getting killed. I love that. Uh, so I can only imagine. I, mean, I feel like there are no accidents in this movie. I feel like yeah. that has to oh, no, be. No. Yeah. The weasels, stupid, smartass, greasy, wheezy, and psycho are rips on the seven dwarves. I love the one that's wearing the zoot suit, which is, oh, again, yeah. also a period accurate thing. Because like the that f-ing Cherry Pop and Daddy's song, Zoot Suit Riots, is based on a real racially motivated incident. Uh, zoot suits were very popular in the um, Latin Chicano population in L.A. And uh, there was a whole incident where there was like this, I think, bar fight that was like really blown out of proportion. And so at one point, the Navy, a bunch of sailors were going around trying to beat up dudes in zoot suits. And then police were called, and it turned into, like, a full-scale, like, actual riot in L.A. So the Zoot Suit Riot very, was a real A very riot. real thing. I did and, not know that. Wow. And tremendously racially motivated. Uh, two of them, Slimy and Sleazy, were written out of the script. And uh, Two weasels, we should yes. mention. I also forgot that the racist crows from, from Dumbo, they're the jazz musicians, which is kind of Right. But I love that. I love the one shot of them. Uh, and there's two of them playing the upright bass stacked on top of each other. One is plucking <laughs> and one is fretting because they wouldn't have been tall enough for it. But again, it's the little things. It's up there with the Truman Show in terms of just world building. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's really incredible. Jordan, tell us about Jessica Rabbit. Yes, the inimitable Jessica Rabbit was based, in the book at least, on a Tex Avery cartoon character named Red in Red Hot Riding Hood? Gross. Yeah, don't like that. And for the movie, the animation director Richard Williams added elements of Rita Hayworth in the movie Gilda and Veronica Lake for the very distinctive peekaboo hairdo. And at the suggestion of director Robert Zemeckis, he based her on Lauren Bacall as well. Mm. Her outfits were also inspired by those worn by the model Vicki Dugan, who was famous for wearing these dresses that were super low cut in the back in the early 50s. And there are all these famous photos in Life magazine of her walking down the street and every head is turned in her direction. You've probably seen them. They're pretty famous photos. Uh, Her speaking lines were delivered by an uncredited Kathleen Turner, who was nine months pregnant at the time. And her singing voice was done by Amy Irving, who was Steven Spielberg's wife at the time. Yeah, and Bob Hoskins claimed that uh, the character design wasn't finalized by the time that they were filming. So Zemeckis just told him to imagine his ideal sexual fantasy. Bangers and mash. Play to bangers and mash. <laughs> and uh, and he, so he says that he that was his direction, your ideal sexual fantasy. And then he claimed that the character design was sexier than what he came up with. It's it's just ridiculous. Um, You know, there's a ton of boob jokes. People keep bumping into her boobs. She pulls out the bear trap in it, or the bear trap comes out of her cleavage at one point. He says, that's a great booby trap, which is hilarious to an eight-year-old. And they animated her so that her breasts bounce against gravity (laughs) as she walks. Just ridiculous man i i I wasn't gonna get into this but it feels the completest in me would feel wrong if we didn't there's a popular internet myth regarding jessica rabbit and uh what i'll just say is brief nudity during the scene where benny the cab crashes and we won't really get into it here google it if you're you know a perf if if pen and ink is your kink um And as you might expect, there are websites that go frame by frame studying this scene as if it were the Zapruder film, which is sad. Um, 
And it's reportedly been removed from the DVD release, but Roger Rabbit creator Gary Wolf has confirmed this in an interview with the author Jim Davies. And, uh, well, let's just say there's mounting evidence that the animators have a touch of the perv. Uh, he says that there's also brief subliminal nudity involving Betty Boop in this movie as well. But it's actually an homage to the original 1930s cartoon clips. And this is his quote. The animators wanted to do an homage to Flesher's Betty Boop. He had her topless in every movie for six frames, invisible to the human eye. So they did the same with her and Roger Rabbit. And when we decided to release the film on video, the producer went on Johnny Carson and spilled the beans. So we were forced to take it out. However, there are numerous other spicy numbers which remain. This is still his quote. You have to find them yourself. <laughs> My favorite is that he claims that among the many other Easter eggs in this movie, they inserted Michael Eisner's home phone number into the movie. <laughs> They have Alice in Wonderland. It's like in a bathroom scene. They have for a good yes, time called call Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And maybe it's that phone number. I don't know. Is Eisner's. Yeah. It's funny because I, I guess they figured it wouldn't show with the frame rate. And then when Laserdisc came out, that was the first thing where you could go through individual frame by frame, frames. Yeah. They didn't count on the power of horny men and home media. Um, <laughs> and a lot of free time. Yeah. Anyways, since Jessica is the most human looking, which is a stretch, but still. Uh, of the tunes, it would have been very easy for them to have had a real actress play the role and then they would have rotoscoped, which is a really interesting early technology uh, where they paint directly on the film strips. Incredibly time-consuming. Famously, the thing I have to repeat every time I say the word rotoscope, what Martin Scorsese used to paint over Neil Young's Coke Booger in The Last Waltz. <laughs> That's right. Um, but so they consciously give her that ridiculous waistline so that they, ha, animation joke, they painted themselves into a corner. Uh, so that they couldn't have used a real woman in there. So th they wanted to, sh to prove that they hadn't rotoscoped anybody, and which I guess they thought was cheating, which sounds just as hard to me. It's, it's, there's a tremendous amount of hubris that they baked into this movie. We'll talk about it in a second, where they were like, here's all the rules we're going to break. Yes. I mean, God love them. You, know, you mentioned earlier that when they were filming the live-action scenes, the character design for Jessica Rabbit wasn't fully completed yet. And you can see an early version of her character in the scene where Roger Rabbit is looking at the photos that Eddie Valiant took of Jessica Rabbit playing patty cake. And those photos were, you know, real photos that the live-action actors had to handle in the movie. So they had to use that while right. the live-action stuff was being filmed, even though the animators hadn't animated her yet. So you actually see, when you look at those pictures in the movie, she actually looks a little different. She almost looks like Ariel from A Little Mermaid. She looks very Weird, different. Because isn't Ariel like 14? Yeah. Weird. But Disney. Yeah. Also, while on the topic of Roger Rabbit and photos, there's the photo that Roger has in his wallet that shows him sitting with Jessica at a restaurant. That's supposed to be the Brown Derby, and there's a lot of... Uh, their Brown Derby was famous for having portraits of its famous clientele up on the like wall. Like the New Yorker-style caricatures, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And in this picture, if you pause it, you can see that the portraits behind them in this restaurant are Roger himself, as well as Mickey Mouse. And there are sort of anonymous looking people and those people are the filmmakers associated with this movie. I think Robert Zemeckis is in there, possibly Spielberg and, and some of the other designers. Yeah, and we alluded earlier how these guys were just like, here's how everyone for the past 50 years of filmmaking has done this. F*** that. <laughs> I think they, didn't they literally have a meeting where yes. the people were like, yeah, you know, through, yes. our, through, our, <laughs> through so, our 50 years of doing this, yep. this is what we've learned not to do. And so they, you, yeah, so you... you the, 
uh, this is, I'm going to try and keep this as non-nerdy as possible. Zemeckis and Dean Cundey go in to early meetings in this film, and Disney's like, all right, you know, they had been doing... There's a famous Mary Poppins scene, right? That's them interacting with cartoons. On the carousel horses. There's a lot of other early Disney movies that did technically combine live action and animation, but they had all these rules. It's like, you got to do it with a locked camera, can't move, can't do close-ups, can't do depth of field, don't get fancy with the lighting. No shadows. Don't do anything that would take too much work for the animators. And then Cundy says, he talked in the rap in uh, 2018, when Bob and I left the meeting, we said, well, those are the rules we're going to break. How are we going to do it? (laughs) Um, so they enlist this guy, animation supervisor, Richard Williams, to do this uh, test sequence that would literally show them breaking every single one of those rules <laughs> in which Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants, stars as Eddie. From The Sopranos? And the dickhead in The Matrix. Oh my God! The most relatable character in The Matrix, Rewatching that movie in 2022 where he elects to not live in the real world anymore and wants to be put back into the simulation. Yeah, anyway. And isn't he in Goonies too? Is he one of the Fratellis? <sighs> Maybe I. Uh, it's been too long since I've seen Goonies. I mean, famously, he's the bad guy in Risky Business back when he had hair, right? Oh, yeah. No, he was in the Goonies, too. Joey Pants. Yeah. So in that scene, Roger comes down a stairway in a back alley, walks in and out of shadow, and the camera tracks him, and there's interactivity with the trash cans. All the things we were told were difficult or impossible. That's Cundy again. He's talking to Gizmodo in 2020. It was so encouraging and so successful that Disney looked at it and said, this is going to be very expensive and time-consuming. Let's go for it. That's what iHeart said about this show. Ah! We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, And then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, Hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. Tired of spills and stains on your sofa? Wash away your worries with Anabay. 
Anabay, the only sofa that's machine washable inside and out, where designer quality meets budget-friendly prices. That's right, sofas from only $639. Anabay brings you a no-risk experience with pet-friendly, stain-resistant, and changeable slipcovers made with performance fabric, cloud-like comfort with high-resilience foam, and hypoallergenic featherless down that needs no fluffing. Their steel frame ensures longevity, and you can rearrange the modular pieces anytime. And here's the cherry on top, up to 60% off site-wide. It's backed by a 30-day satisfaction guarantee, so if you're not absolutely in love, send it back for a full refund. No return shipping or restocking fees. Every penny back. Join the revolution of easy, clean, stylish living with up to 60% off at anabay.com. That's A-N-A-B-E-I.com. Offers are subject to change and certain restrictions may apply. So the actual workflow for this movie, five-month live-action shoot, which happens in London. And during this, there's so much great behind-the-scenes footage in this. They have uh, dummies. So they have, like, these weird, like, rubber stand-ins. Like, there's a rubber Roger, and whenever they have to, like, manhandle them and move them around. And they use all these early animatronics that look like these erector set things that were controlled by guys with actual armature. Like, the see when Roger's breaking the plates over his head? That's a robot arm. And there's they use a bunch of these. How do they get it out? How do they... They just animate it over it. Oh, And that's, oh, that's wow. the compositing process okay. over this. is so nuts. The club scene is essentially like a three-layered set. It's built eight feet off the ground so that guys could run under it holding the drink trays on these long rods through channels that were cut in the floor. Those are the drink trays that the penguin waiters are running around with. And then there's also a layer on top of it so that they could hold shit on strings like the octopus bartender. Yeah. They're holding all of those glasses and stuff on strings. That is the same puppeteer, David Allen Barclay, who puppeteered Jabba the Hutt in Return of the Jedi. It's wild. I it just every bit of this is insane. He's standing on beams above the set doing all of this. Uh, Richard Williams, the anim- supervising animator, said he was openly disdainful of the Disney bureaucracy <laughs> and refused to work in London. <laughs> So they established his studio in Camden Town to shoot all the live action, which was done in Elstree Studio. And Cundy called shooting there probably the hardest part of it because it was so cold. The winter was one of the coldest they'd had in about 40 years. It was 15 to 20 degrees when they shot this. The building was not insulated or heated. And fun fact, the entrance to uh, Desilu Studios, the I Love Lucy Studios that uh, Lucy and Desi set up, is the... uh, fictional maroon cartoon studio a lot i did not know that so, wow bing i don't think we have a running i love lucy count but we should oh, no. we don't have a hanks we've had no hanks sightings in this one was hanks not considered for Apparently, no it was the only guy wow. yeah so yeah before the animation even happened uh zemeckis would sit richard williams down with rough cuts of the scenes the dailies and describe what was going to happen you can watch him do this williams is sitting there with a sketch pad and zemeckis is going okay Bob's going to take Roger and, you know, force him down into his trench coat. And you see him furiously sketching this stuff out, like, as it's being described to him. And then when the animation team took over, they were given monochrome prints of the still frames of the live shots. Every single frame of this movie that they would put under essentially tracing paper so that they could animate each individual frame over all of the existing live shots which are then photographed one frame at a time and sent to ILM to be composited. 55 minutes of animated shots, 
82,000 animated cells as part of a 104-minute movie, 14 months of post-production. Was something like 326 full-time animators? Not Zemeckis to mention... said there were 1,500 composite shots. Wow. Because it's almost essentially like almost a full-length animated film plus a full-length live-action film. It's just wild. Yeah, I was going to say, 14 months of post-production sounds short, because, I mean, don't Disney features take, like, two years? Yeah, it's a two-year two timeline. Wow, so, I mean, that's... I guess they don't have to do all the backgrounds and stuff, but still, that's insane. And it's important to reiterate here that there is no computer-animated anything in this movie. And I guess it was briefly discussed, but the technology of the time was too primitive, and it just... What they did have available would have looked way too out of style for the 1940s aesthetic that they had in the rest of the movie. Uh, Eddie Valiant's initial 30-second stroll through the Maroon Cartoon Studios was so complex that it involved over 180 individual elements. And when it was assembled with the film pieces, it created an eight-foot-tall stack <laughs> of animation cells for 30 seconds of animation. I mean, just you talk about all the composite stuff. There were some moments in the film where with effects layers, with, you know, there's a layer done for the cartoon character, a layer done for Shadow. This is all separate layers. There would sometimes be 600 separate drawings that were required for one second of animation. I mean, it's insane. It's ridiculous. You mentioned the wallet scene. The way that that looks with the red lighting coming in and he's also backlit by the lighting from the club and he's in Shadow. How much cocaine were they on to think that this was a good idea? Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Uh, One of the big guiding principles that they had was that the animated character should always be interacting with real elements so that they didn't have that pasted on flat look. They love to prove. I mean, again, Jessica Rabbit looking like a human who could never exist so they couldn't be accused of rotoscoping an actual human taking the, quote, easy way out. No, we're not only going to have cartoons. We're going to have them in weird lighting, interacting with real life stuff so that dust would fly up. It would not only be animated. We will also give her a sequined dress in a nightclub, which they apparently did by filtering light through a plastic bag that they scuffed up with steel wool. Yeah, they said if the rabbit sits down in an old chair, dust should come up. They should always be interacting with real objects. You know, when the weasels barge in and one of them is holding like a real pistol, it's aimed at the camera and then it pivots left and pivots right on strings that they then animate around. Again, they flew too close to the sun, but they did not crash. The only thing that isn't in this movie, the, the like the bit of Hollywood trickery that's not in it, there are no matte paintings. Wait, explain what those are. I'm not sure. Matte paintings are like, it's basically a hyper-detailed illustration that they use rear projection to composite into a film. So like uh. the classic one is um, in Indiana Jones when they wheel the Ark of the Covenant into the government warehouse and you see all the hundreds of other things that the government has like stockpiled. That's a matte painting. Oh, okay. It's just a big super detailed illustration that serves as a background when it would be impractical to shoot one. Um, yeah, he said they made it through the entire production. And they're like, oh, we don't have a matte painting. Should we put one in? And he was like, eh. <laughs> I have a question for you about the blending of animation Go on. And, and live action humans. Uh, the scene where Eddie Valiant is riding around in Benny the Cab, he's animated in some of those shots. Is that because it was just... I think there were some cheats in there. The Red Letter Media guys, again, point out a few where there's just, like, people missing in certain pans. Mm. I think Jessica's hand is actually rotoscope when she grabs Eddie's tie uh, because I think there were certain things where they were just, like... You can't get... We yeah. ran, they ran out of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> they were just, like, we can't do this anymore. <laughs> 
But they, yeah, there's now a term at Disney among the animators inspired by this movie. They use the term bumping the lamp because there's that scene where they burst into the prohibition hiding room in Dolores's bar. They're so handcuffed together at that point. Eddie's interrogating Roger and they bump the overhead lamp and it starts swinging around. So between animating all the physical parts and the lighting on there and all the shadows are consistent across the characters with all the textures of them. That's what Disney animators now use for any time that they have to go above and beyond. They call it bumping the lamp. Because by bumping the lamp, you would have to make these wild and consistent shadows on these animated characters in there just at random because the thing's swinging around wildly. And ILM actually built the cameras that they had to make. And this is going to get a little in the weeds. I'm going to try and explain it as best I can. When you composite illustrated aspects onto live film, it's called optical printing, right? Where you essentially paste the image over the film. And what that creates is like you start seeing all what they call the artifacts, like the grain of the film and the image starts to degrade from the printing process. And then you see this in, you know, again, Mary Poppins is the biggest one that I can think of. So they shot in VistaVision, which is this archaic, I guess it wasn't archaic, it was probably cutting edge at the time. These cameras that are developed by Paramount in the 1950s that essentially capture an image twice as large as standard film camera so that when then that's composited at ilm and printed down all of those other grain and the weird colors that's gone and what Cundy says is they use twice as much film but got twice the clarity and sharpness this is why they ended up with stacks of film eight feet tall but the original cameras from paramount had been scrapped because i guess it was too expensive or not needed or whatever so ilm just built a new set of them from scratch again so much cocaine, so much hubris. <laughs> like, how are we going to do this? Have George build them. <laughs> and yeah, so this obviously we talked about this was so ungodly expensive. Budget was hacked from 50 mil projected down to 30, ticks up to 40. Michael Eisner is like, eh, you know, let's maybe pull the plug on this. And uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg, enemy of the program, actually uh, intervenes. I never expected to say good for Jeffrey Katzenberg. But. <laughs> Speaking of Michael Eisner, it's oft repeated that Joel Silver's cameo as the director of the baby Herman short at the beginning of the movie was a jab at Eisner because there had been bad blood between the two ever since they had butted heads making 48 hours. Joel Silver shaved his beard, kept his name off the cast sheets, and even paid his own way to be in this movie. And when Eisner was told that it was Silver, because I guess he didn't recognize him at first, he reportedly shrugged and said, eh, he was pretty good. <laughs> Wait, get into there. I, I actually don't know much don't about this. I don't know too much feud. about this either. I think it was, um, so uh, Walter Hill, who did The Warriors, I'm pretty sure. So when he came to 48 Hours, he wanted like to be a little more gritty. And I guess... Eisner, he was just like up their asses when they were making this. Up Joel Silver and Walter Hill being like, it's not funny enough. It's not funny enough. You got to let Eddie Murphy off the leash. He's got to do more. You've got to write more jokes for Eddie Murphy. You got to write more jokes for Nick Nolte, just like in dailies. And uh, Hill said uh, they rewrote Murphy's character right down to the last day of shooting based on uh, Eisner's interference, I guess, with it. Which, good Lord. And so that's why he plays this like hairy director who's just like screaming her baby, you were great. You were great. You were great. Roger. Um, I don't think too much of the score for this. Alan Silvestri, iconic film composer. I mean, admittedly, it was probably a very big technical challenge to kind of merge the like uh, late night jazz noir kind of vibe with the um, these Carl Stalling 
insane. Yeah, all the all the all the tune cues, like coked up carnival music. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, I just think this is interesting that that uh, when Jessica Rabbit, not for her musical number, but when she's like strolling through scenes, they just had a bunch of like jazz session guys in the in they were just like ah improvise it so they just do all this like sultry burlesque sexy sax songs <laughs> i mean and i i mean this in the most respectful way she moves like a metronome yeah i mean yeah. from the yeah exactly it's like when uh james jamerson talks about um the motown bassist uh i think it's the bernadette or reach out i'll be there uh, with has that famous bass break, he said they were like, "How did you come up with that?" And he was like, "I thought about a woman's butt moving down the street." <laughs> Speaking of the music, there's a funny story behind the song that's sung at the end of the movie by all the cartoons. It's like kind of the fade out number. It's an old Mary Melody's chestnut from 1931 called "Smile, Darn You Smile." <laughs> that song is so annoying. I know. The producers, I guess, had hired a professional singing group to record it, but it sounded too polished and too tame and not, you know, raucous and cartoony enough. So at the rap party for Roger Rabbit in March of 1988, they mic'd up the room and had the entire cast and crew just warble their way through the song. And I guess each crew member was paid one pound, uh, which is a little more than a dollar for their singing contribution, and everybody had to sign a waiver at this party. And that's what you're hearing at the very end. Well, fittingly, we come to the end of the film and the insane production process, and we get into test screening land. Jordan, tell us about the test screenings for this movie. Yes, early test screenings did not go well, probably because they were really marketing this towards older teenagers, and I guess a lot of them actually walked out. Because the whole thing's an opening cartoon. They were like, what the hell is this? Well, I mean, this will at least make you happy. Robert Zemeckis later said that then-Disney chairman Jeffrey Katzenberg said that he saw his life flash before his eyes after these extremely poorly reviewed test screenings. You spent 50 bill on a picture. Kids are walking out of the test screening. That but it made Katzenberg well. unhappy. So there you go. Yes. yes. <laughs> Count that as a win. Uh, so Michael Eisner and Roy E. Disney, the vice chairman of Disney, thought the film was too adult. But uh, again, Robert Zemeckis had final cut on the movie and he refused to make any changes. So along with Jeffrey Katzenberg, they decided to release it under the Touchstone Pictures marquee under Walt Disney Pictures, mm -hmm. which is kind of Disney's more adult banner, I should say. Uh, and the thing that I actually hadn't really considered about making this movie was that editing the final composite print was basically impossible. Right. Yeah, that's probably why it was like, F you, I get Final Cut. Right. Yeah. Uh, because... Uh, Again, yeah, it's probably why he was extremely reluctant to make any changes to the final cut. Animation was done specifically to live action scenes that were already shot and dialogue that had already been recorded. They couldn't do reshoots or use alternative takes because that would mean reanimating everything. And that just would have been prohibitively expensive and at least a year of delays, you know, I mean, something insane. And I guess cutting out even a part of a scene for timing would have screwed everything up and they would have had to just lose the entire scene wholesale. So there really wasn't much to be done after the final composite print was made of this movie. It was editing. It was just kind of impossible. On an even more granular level, the title of the movie. Many people have, you know, we're, you and I are both copy editors or have spent a lot of time copy editing. Yeah. Many people have justifiably asked, why is there no question mark at the end of the film's title? Who framed Roger Rabbit? On the DVD commentary, Robert Zemeckis starts to say, everyone said you don't put question marks. He's, yeah, he's talking to the screenwriters and someone's like, oh yeah, people kept pointing out to us like, you guys wrote this without a question mark in the title? And he says, 
Everyone said that you don't put question marks and then someone cuts them off, but there's like the implicit statement in there because... I guess there's like a Hollywood superstition about question marks in movie titles. I yeah. could, I don't know. Everything I Googled with just circles back to this. So I don't know where that comes from. But yeah, I mean, you've mentioned that there's whatever happened to baby Jane, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, and they shoot horses, don't they? Those are all classic movies that have the question mark. And then there's also modern big movies that, you know, have a question mark in their title. What about Bob? Oh, brother, where art thou? Dude, where's my car? That's cinematic classic. Truly. Who <laughs> <laughs> among I'm, us? In what other paragraph would you have who's afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf and dude, where's my car spoken That's in the, the same? That's the TMI guarantee. Yes. <laughs> I guess there's a similar thing with who wants to be a millionaire. Um, oh, yeah? I think the British version has a question mark. And when they brought it over to America, they took the question mark I out. guess it's supposed to be a statement. Well, like, yeah, and producers said, this that's is, not a question. Yeah. Who wants to be a millionaire? The answer is everyone. Yeah. Anyway, so speaking of on-screen titles and credits, the credit sequence for Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I guess, broke the record for the longest end credits ever. Huh. They ran nearly seven minutes. I haven't timed it myself, but I've seen some sources say it went actually up to 10 minutes. And they're crediting a cast and crew of some 743 people, including 326 full-time animators. But again, no credit for Kathleen Turner for voicing Jessica Rabbit. Why was she uncredited? I don't know, man. I wonder if it was a contract thing. Because she had just been romancing the stone. That so Bob like, Zemeckis had directed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. Either way, Zemeckis' uh, faith in the film being released as is paid off. Took in $11.2 million its opening weekend. Which, uh, first place finish at the U.S. box office. Its worldwide gross was $329.8 million which made it, at the time of its release, the 20th highest grossing film of all time. And that year, the only thing that came in higher was Rain Man, favorite of yours, uh, 12 Minutes to Wapner. In the United Kingdom, the film also set a record opening for any Disney movie, period. Now, I'm not a Disney historian, but I play one on TV. Um, <laughs> so I should really tread lightly in saying this, but I've read that Who Framed Roger Rabbit basically saved the Disney animation studio and helped pave the way for the Disney renaissance of the 90s. Before Roger Rabbit, Disney's animated films had kind of been flopping. They hadn't had a hit since The Fox and the Hound in the early 80s. Uh, 1985's Black Cauldron was a financial disaster, and 1986's The Great Mouse Detective barely made its money back. Great movie. Yeah, it is a great movie, but audiences didn't think so, I nope. guess. <laughs> uh, so Disney was in the midst of cutting back projects around the time of Roger Rabbit, and apparently they were seriously considering shutting down their animation department altogether. Damn. At least according to sources I've read. I mean, again, in the 80s, I'm thinking of like live action stuff like, I don't know why this is the first one that comes to mind, but like Flight of the Navigator. <laughs> and maybe they were pivoting to those kind of live action things. Or Freaky Friday. But then they made this deal with Steven Spielberg's Amblin Entertainment to co-produce Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And the success of that movie helped convince them to continue to invest in animation. Yeah, and then uh, Little Mermaid's 89. Yeah. And then we're off to the races. Exactly. The, we call it the, the Disney Renaissance or the second golden age of Disney or whatever. Um, critics mostly love the film, although uh, I mentioned earlier that Chuck Jones did not. He's on the record as not liking this film. And Chuck Jones is like the famous Looney Tunes ba yeah. director. Why doesn't he like it? He just said it. I think I, I read something did you where read he said the quote? he thought it was like disrespectful to cartoons yeah. and, and lacked a fundamental understanding of cartoons. Yes, that um, is. Well, that'll do it, I guess. Yeah, that's the line. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I again, I'm bummed. I just think. Bob Hoskins just a hero's work in this film and he was not nominated for an Academy Award. He probably wouldn't have won because the it's just too light 
for the uh, Oscars, but he should have been nominated, in my educated opinion. Uh, they did win, though, for editing, sound effects, and visual effects, which is, I think, sort of the big three of technical awards, yeah. right? It's like that, yeah. like production design, maybe wardrobe. And yes, folks, it is in the Library of Congress <laughs> Film Archive. I guess Bob Hoskins uh, sort of understandably had to take a year off from acting after doing Roger Rabbit to just recuperate from the experience. And he later said, I had to learn to hallucinate to do Roger <laughs> Rabbit. After doing it for six months for 16 hours a day, I had lost control of it and sort of had weasels and rabbits popping out at the wall <laughs> of me. Um, God, all right. So now we get into sequel territory. This is truly insane. As early as 89, apparently J.J. Abrams... One of my least favorite modern directors wrote an outline for a full-length sequel. Considering half his career is just doing etch-a-sketch versions of better movies that came before him, I cannot imagine how badly that must have sucked. All the Abrams fanboys are going to come after me for that. But um, there were a few different shorts that they made starring Roger. They did kind of go back to the well, and they would just get thrown out as like teasers or in front of other Disney features in like 89 and 90. And then they shut down four in like mid-production. But the feature length treatment that was pitched for this was called Roger Rabbit Toon Platoon. (laughs) And it would have been a prequel, a World War II movie in which toons fight Nazis. Jessica Rabbit is kidnapped and forced to make pro-Nazi German broadcasts. At the end of the movie, you discover Bugs Bunny is Roger Rabbit's dad. That's a great twist. That's a great Star Wars and then level. They pivot. The thing that I read is that they pivot after this reveal and he says, gee, ain't I a stinker? Because the whole movie is also, I forgot to even foreground this, the movie is about Roger Rabbit trying to find out who his dad is. The Nazi stuff is secondary. <laughs> and then at the end, they pivot to Bugs Bunny being his dad. And he says, gee, ain't I a stinker? ridiculous yeah i guess uh spielberg decided to back out of doing this uh world war ii era roger rabbit movie because he had just done schindler's list and he probably needed a break from nazis in general and he really didn't feel good about doing a comedic nazi movie after that yeah so that that makes a lot of sense uh but i guess michael eisner commissioned a rewrite in 1997 for a roger rabbit sequel that wound up getting Five songs from friend of the podcast, Alan Menken, the Disney composer who helped write the every Disney banger ever. Right. I mean, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, uh, Little Mermaid, Little Mermaid. Yeah. The plot point of this was that it would have been Roger's ascendance to fame on Broadway. So that's why they were going to make it a full fledged musical. Oh, yeah. I I think they called it Who Discovered Roger Rabbit. Oh, that's good. I like that. Uh, one of the songs, This Only Happens in the Movies, was recorded in 2008 on the debut album of the Broadway actress Kelly Butler. So you, you can, can see that hear. out there. Yeah, you yeah. can hear some of that. Um, so I guess this sequel got as far as test animation, and you can see some CGI Roger footage on YouTube. I don't like CGI Roger. It's very it's very early Pixar, like beach balloon okay. character. Eh, yeah, I don't know. Something about it, it, hearing the Herculean lengths that these animators went yeah. to avoid CGI. It seems sad to me that the sequel would have relied on that. Uh, but I guess costs for this Roger Rabbit sequel ballooned over $150 million. And that's in 2022 dollars, but yeah. still a lot of money. And Michael Eisner pulled the plug in, in favor, favor of what? Doing Pearl Harbor <laughs> with Ben Affleck. It's our second Affleck reference. Yeah, and Zemeckis has talked about this since he said that in 2016, the script has now moved on to putting the story of Roger and Jessica Rabbit into the next few years of period film, which would have been then a love letter to the cinema of the 1950s. 
In much worse news, he stated that it also called for a digital Bob Hoskins as the ghost of Eddie Valiant. Oh, God. It's a f***ing nightmare. Uh, Hoskins retired in 2014. I think he had Parkinson's. Oh, is it, yeah, um, I know he died. I didn't he has know. since passed on, but Jesus Christ. Um, and he has, I think he said in 2018 that it's just not going to happen. I don't think he thinks it's ever going to be greenlit because, quote, the current corporate Disney culture has no interest in Roger, and they certainly don't like Jessica at all. <laughs> he said that in 2016, and then in 2018, he said he doesn't see it happening on Disney Plus as like a Disney Plus original because he said, quote, there's no princess in it. Uh, we mentioned earlier that this film is back in the zeitgeist because um, they put out Chip and Dale Rescue Rangers. is a feature-length Chip and Dale movie out now. Anyone? Chippendale. I guess John Mulaney's in this. I didn't know shit about this movie until just now. And one of the screenwriters called it, in our minds, this has always been sort of a backdoor sequel to Roger Rabbit. In It's like in-universe. And Roger Rabbit appears in the film in a nightclub dance sequence because oh. nothing is sacred and there is no dignity anymore. <laughs> uh, I Whatever, man. They actually take shots across Zemeckis' brow in that film in a clip that I saw. There's a part where they... I guess they're walking down the street and they say this neighborhood is the uncanny valley. And they, they say this is where all of the early CGI human characters live, which then they beat into the ground by explaining what the uncanny valley is. They're like, you know how when in the early 2000s, when they started doing like early CGI humans and they don't look quite right, that's called the uncanny valley. And so this neighborhood we're walking through with all of those cartoon characters that are CGI humans. That's why this is called the uncanny valley. Classic case of overexplaining your joke. And then at one point, they literally they run into a character that is like deliberately kind of wonky looking CGI. And they say he's got those creepy Polar Express eyes. Oh, Zemeckis did that. Yeah. Aww. So. Whatever, fuck them. Uh, they can't hold a goddamn candle to this movie. I didn't write an outro to this. I'm not gonna. A plus film, no notes. Would you like a sequel? No. Uh, no, I would if it's if they do. Here's they my do the pitch. same amount here's of work in cocaine. Here's my pitch for a sequel. You get Quentin Tarantino to start doing cocaine again. You get Robert Zemeckis to start doing cocaine again. And Glorious bring... Bastards kind of seems like the, the That's World what War I'm II, saying. Yeah. You get a hard R... <laughs> Inglorious Bastards, Roger Rabbit fighting Nazis. It'll never happen. That's what I want. They kill Hitler. Full stop. Great. Sold. We open on Viet Cong in the jungles. We close <laughs> on killing Hitler. Roger Folks, Rabbit is the threat. Thank you for listening. I'm going to throw my laptop down as a mic drop. This has been too much information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. 
featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity.